You are listening to Subtle Disruptors Melbourne. This is the first series of the podcast, Subtle Disruptors, telling the stories of those who are quietly having an amazing positive impact on their city and the world. Latent untapped pool of social change, which is $500 billion in Australia, that could be driving all sorts of um, impact. And I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see that realized. When thinking about how large-scale, positive social change can come about in our cities and countries, it is easy to get caught up in the latest and greatest as our source of hope. This week's guest is taking a different approach, using a process and tool that exists in all corporates and governments, and subtly tweaking it and changing our thinking about it to potentially bring about massive social benefits. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk with Mark Daniels, about the subtle disruption of procurement. We're at the Atherton Gardens Public Housing Estate in Fitzroy. Um, We're here because uh, I worked here um, for about eight years, um, directly running the estate and and around this estate for other organisations. And it's a public housing estate with 800 households on it. And I guess it helped me to... um, understand the power of local economic development in addressing social exclusion or disadvantage and it really led me on a path to look at some of the big levers for social change and one of those levers is procurement and when I was working here we really explored procurement as a critical tool in creating employment for people who are marginalised and we looked at our own spend as a housing department in terms of um, uh, one of the enablers for social change and and, and it sort of stimulated for me the role of not only procurement but social enterprise and I guess um, free thinking in terms of the way that you might uh, respond to an issue you know it's not always throwing money uh, at a solution sometimes it's using your money differently to get a solution that doesn't really cost you any money. So it's setting a strategic framework, I guess, for change rather than trying to buy change. So this resonates a lot with me because um, this place um, uh, it was a real test pit. It was a sand pit for playing with social procurement and it was a sand pit for playing for social, with social enterprise for both the government, for the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence and for myself. And um, that sand pit was a really rich environment even if I'm one of the few legacies of that environment, uh, there is still social procurement occurring in this community. But I'm telling that story a lot, a lot, and um, it's resonating again. So it's having its second wind almost. We were doing this stuff in the early 2000s, and now it feels like the time is right for this stuff to really move to a completely different level. Yeah. Um, we are outside, as listeners can probably hear. There's a little bit of wind around, and hopefully it's not too distracting. Um, just before we get into the, the work that you actually did here, I wanted to just talk about this actual space because it's got, for me, this is actually the first time I've been on a housing, yeah, right. I used to call it housing commission flats yeah. is, is the term that I have in my sure. head. And I think, well, there's probably some listeners that are overseas and probably don't know exactly what we're talking about. And probably a lot of local Australian yep. listeners that do and have quite a stigma yep. about this kind of place. Can you, how does it equate, first of all, to say something like, like the projects yeah, in America? Okay. Is, it a, is it a similar kind of place? It, it is. Um, so this 
is a public housing estate in Victoria, where we're based, or in Melbourne. But in Victoria, as a state, uh, it's about 3% of the total housing stock is public housing. Uh, and it houses the most disadvantaged people in the community. It's subsidised housing, so you pay 25% of the household income, that's the rent. So if you've got one person receiving a government pension, they pay 25% of that. If you have five people uh, who receive government pensions, you pay 25% of that. It's designed to be the safety net for, so, for housing. So this is where homeless people go when they're rehoused. This is where people who are on pensions, you have to be on a pension to get into public housing. Um, so I guess the profile of the person who lives here is complex and marginalised. Um, and I guess that when they go awry, a public housing estate, it can be um, equally complex in terms of how do you turn it back. So if you think about a project in the US, you know the, the, the you know the twenty-story towers that run, so you know twenty or fifteen of those in, in one concentrated space. Um, it has an element of that. Uh, we only have four towers here, so 800 properties, but uh, it can go awry just as uh, some of the projects in the US have gone awry, and it can be fixed just as some of the projects in the US were fixed. So you can get the worst of society rearing its head in these communities, and you can also see how highly disadvantaged people can live together in quite a functional and uh, harmonious environment as well. And my background here was we saw both. We saw the worst of society and we saw societies that learnt to function when there was a government or a community investment in, in, in remedying the issues. Yeah. The, the problem that you identified here, what was that problem, the one that you were talking about where you said, sure. you know, throwing money at this is no longer going to work. Yep. You know, we need to find some alternative ways of thinking about it. Yeah. Well, the, the problem was that I started working here around 2000 um, and uh, there have been years of underinvestment in these communities. Uh, increasingly over time it had moved to models where it used to house working people but um, over the 10 years leading up to 2000 they'd moved to very uh, selective entry processes and you had to be highly disadvantaged to get into this housing. So I guess... Um, uh, a consequence of underinvestment of changing eligibility for social housing led to, and, and the location of this estate, it's in Fitzroy. Um, it, in 2000, was still quite an edgy suburb. The neighbouring suburb, Collingwood, was also quite edgy. Um, heroin was really ramping up in terms of its presence. Probably in the late 90s, heroin had really ramped up as the drug of choice in uh, Melbourne for you know, recreational drug users uh, and there was a real serious heroin issue and it, a lot of that heroin issue centred on the Fitzroy, Richmond and Collingwood high-rise estates. So I guess the problem we had was that um, our dealers were dealing out of these flats. Uh, we estimated that the industry was quite large. Um, you know, we were playing around with numbers like $300 million of heroin trade on three estates um, and it wasn't a stretch to, to actually think that that was the case 
uh, we were collecting 2,000 syringes a month at Fitzroy alone. So you multiply that across Fitzroy, Collingwood and Richmond, probably talking about something in the region of six or 7,000 syringes a month being collected on the estate. That doesn't capture what was walking off the estate and what was being disposed of by other means. So, you know, it's quite realistic that, you know, 15 to 20,000 deals were happening a month in these towers. So it wasn't, uh, and, and what comes with heroin deals is all of the detriment, human detriment that sits alongside that. So um, you have needles lying around all over the place. When people use heroin, there's a lot of blood generally. So when they're shooting up, um, you get blood. You also lose control of your bowels. Uh, so you get all of the other <laughs> nasties that come with that. And you also have people who are just zonked out sitting in the floor with a needle hanging out of their arm, you know, urine in the stairwells. Um, so public spaces actually become unbearable to be in. And we had a lot of there are communal laundries in this, these estates. So junkies need water to, um, uh, you know, they have to heat up the heroin and, and dilute it in water before they can shoot up. And so people would be breaking in. So all the locks were broken on the laundries. Every time you went to do your laundry, you'd see syringes. You'd often run into junkies. And so, you know, the point from a functional estate to a dysfunctional estate is not a long journey when you have something as pervasive as heroin um, driving that journey. And the dealers were the rulers of this estate. You know, they've got a lot at stake. So they aren't going to be cooperative, generally speaking. Um, and in that time, the government was the, um, I guess the land, well, government is the landlord. They're responsible for the quality of life for the people who live here, to an extent, I guess. And certainly they're responsible for providing a safe environment for the people living here. And this was an unsafe environment at that time. So the typical experience was no one who didn't live on these estates would come onto these estates. They were unwelcoming. Uh, the typical experience would be to see junkies, um, and the junkies can be quite agitated at times, and, and people are uncomfortable. It was open access to the building, so anyone could come in. Um, and so the public spaces were no longer the tenant's spaces, they really were the drug dealer's spaces. So people felt unsafe, and that translated to um, really um, unfavourable tenancies. So we had... Uh, on this estate in 2002, I think we had 125 vacant properties despite the fact that there was a waiting list of 40,000 for public housing in Victoria, which says people would rather be homeless than living on this estate. Um, we also had 25% uh, annual turnover, so every four years everyone left this community and was replaced. And uh, those... Um, experiences really reflected a community that was completely undesirable, completely in turmoil, and it wasn't living out the function that it was designed to perform, which yeah. was to provide safe, affordable housing. Yeah. So then you had some kind of brainwave at that point. Well, it wasn't thought... just me. I mean, I was part of it, which, you know, is nice. It's yeah. nice to paint it out as me, but it was a, a group of people at the time. I mean... I, 
the first thing that happened, which was really interesting, was that we were on the front page of the Herald Sun for four days in a row in Victoria. It was about 2002, um, or late 2001. And High Rise Hell was the uh, headline. There'd been a drug expose done on the uh, estate. So an investigative journalist apparently spent a month on the estate and uh, filmed, um, well, not filmed, but, but, you know, was talking to, to the dealers, talking to the tenants about, you know, life here. And drug expose really just highlighted the fact that um, uh, this was an unpleasant place to live and... You know, it became ta- high-rise hell. Towers of Terror was the next day, the headline. I think something about caves another day. And, and then it slowly went to page 5 and, and 12, and, and then it was disappeared. Um, in fact, one day they actually had a picture of one of the playgrounds, and we're looking at them right now. And it had a, a map. It had a dotted line <laughs> that pointed to a place, and it said, Drugs here. And basically it was saying that a drug deal would be done the heroin would be buried somewhere on the on in the playground, and that you know you go and dig up the heroin and walk away with your your fit. Yeah. And you know my standard comment is uh, that never happens. Being tall and skinny, I got approached uh, by dealers all the time, and they just had foils <laughs> in their hands. There was no uh, you had to go and dig it up in the playground. And the funny thing was, the day after that story ran, um, the whole playground got dug up. <laughs> And you couldn't buy a shovel in Fitzroy. <laughs> it was like a treasure hunt for, for the heroin. Yeah, it was very funny. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, was, um, that was the point at which um, the government said, we've got to do something about this. And the first thing they did was they uh, put more security on, which is a knee-jerk reaction, but it was a needed reaction. So every tower got 24-7 security in the base of the tower, and uh, you had to get swipe card access to get into the buildings and you had to identify where you're going within the building and junkies really didn't like being questioned you know so when they are seeking to score they're usually a bit edgy they're really ready for whatever they're looking for and having someone say where are you going uh, and ringing that tenant before uh, they're allowed to go up was really disconcerting for a junkie. So it, we were target hardening, basically. That was the first. We made it impossible to get into the building other than through that front door, and you had to be scrutinised. The other things that we did was we increased the amount of community development happening on the estate and, and tried to build more social capital in this community. Um, and then we started to upgrade the buildings as well. So pretty much every flat on this estate has now been upgraded 13 years later. Uh, so it was improving the asset, in making security more um, uh, fundamental and also um, uh, increasing community development. And then we, we actually um, started to look at the ripple effects of that activity. So we ran all sorts of things on the estate. We had you know, community plays and the Vietnamese women's group and the uh, Chinese elderly persons group. All these groups started to emerge and we, we were building, I guess... Um, bonds between the community but what we realized after a time was that um, uh, even a year or two in we could stabilize this problem and there was less heroin on the estate it became harder to access it but the 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 role models were still the drug dealers they were the only people who really worked because there's 95 percent joblessness in this community and they were the ones you can make money from because you could run heroin for them and get a hundred bucks really quickly and easily 
Um, and they were the ones with the BMWs and Mercedes. So if I was a kid, they were the ones that I would aspire to be because they had everything that I wanted really. Uh, so we decided or, or concluded that um, employment, that the role models on the estate were the wrong role models and we needed to create um, uh, other models for children to see in this community. Yeah. And so um, we started to, to, you know, we went down the path of, well, we have to create more employment, we have to have more working people. And we were asking other people to employ tenants on this estate, but we were spending about $6 million a year across Fitzroy and Collingwood. This is in 2000 money as well, so it's probably worth double that today. So we had contracts for cleaning. On this estate alone, there are seven kilometres of corridors that need to be cleaned, and they are cleaned every two weeks. The grounds are seven hectares of, of grounds. Yeah. Same at Collingwood, same sort of thing. So um, we started to look at our spend as an opportunity to create employment for tenants. At the same time, starting to push other employers to employ tenants as well. But by far the most successful strategy was our own spend. And so uh, the first thing we did was look at a contract for cleaning that had come up. So it was, it's, it's a major contract on this estate. Mm. And it was about a million dollars across Fitzroy and Collingwood, probably about 30 staff positions in the direct delivery of that work. And we got permission from the, the, uh, the uh, executive director of housing to insert a clause that required the successful bidder to employ at least 35% of their workforce from currently unemployed public housing tenants from Fitzroy and Collingwood. And that simple inclusion generated 15 jobs. So when the contractor won that contract, they took on 15 public housing tenants. And overnight we went from 95% joblessness to 92% joblessness at Fitzroy and Collingwood. Wow. This was entry level work. Um, and it was really interesting. We expected, you know, they expected to churn through staff, the, the contractors. They lost one staff in the whole of the first year. So the people that applied for those jobs had done pre-employment programs. They were ready for the opportunity. They just hadn't been given the opportunity previously. And those 15 jobs were profound. Um, and, and made us realise that we could do so much with our spend. If one million could generate 15 jobs and take 95 to 92%, what could we do with six million? So we started to look at our other opportunities as well. And around this time, we started to work quite closely with the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, who were the local, uh, they're opposite the estate, uh, their head office, and, and they were managing the employment Job Services Australia contract, Job Network contract. So their job was to, in part, find jobs for people off the public housing estate. Um, observation they communicated to us is that every uh, year, people who live here have to go and um, uh, they're mutually obligated to do a training course with the Brotherhood. It's about 2002, 2003. And every year they go and do a training course and most of them, over that four or five week period, get quite motivated. Um, and they start applying for jobs. They get a really good CV. But they've been unemployed for six or eight years and they don't get work generally. And so they go back to their flat at the end of that period. And then they spend the next uh, you know, 11 months uh, not working until they're mutually obligated to go and do training again. 
So the Brotherhood said to us, well, if we have one of your contracts, what we do is after we've done that mutually obligated training, we would love to have a social enterprise that we could roll those people into and capture them just when they're motivated and ready for the opportunity. And so we sat down with them and we created a, a, a we started to look at the opportunities and, and this 24-7 security guard contract that we had seemed like the best opportunity. And, and, and the Brotherhood really ran with it. I mean, they said, what if we turned it into a concierge type model? Think, you know, the US and, and high-rise um, apartments. Not public housing, but private housing. Uh, what if we did that? And, and, and the tenants actually became um, concierges. Um, and we thought it was a fantastic idea. Uh, and so the model kind of went like this. Um, we do pre-employment training. We get them ready for the opportunity. They roll into a 12-month contract with the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence. It's a real job. Um, but during that 12 months, we're doing a certificate level qualification with them in community services or security. Uh, they are becoming an information referral point uh, at the base of the tower. They know everyone who lives there. Yep. Um, they can ring them if they're not hearing from them. They've got um, different ethnic backgrounds so they can translate information for the people who live there. They've got a sympathetic workplace so the workplace uh, understands that they've had six years of not working um, and that there'll be issues at times that need to get worked through and they may need referrals to local services to address those issues. But in many ways it was the perfect design for a social enterprise because you could take a long-term unemployed person, give them a 12-month work history, you could work through the issues that they that have been keeping out of them out of the labour market. Uh, they would leave after 12 months, be supported into a job in the open labour market with a certificate level qualification and 12 months work history. So it was Amazing. beautiful. Yeah. And um, that started in 2004. And so the shift that they were given, they didn't get all 24, 7, 30, you know, 365 um, shifts. They got the 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. shift. Partly that was because at night, some of the issues that arise are quite complex at times. And um, the Brotherhood wasn't a security company and didn't want to be a security company. Uh, it seemed like the day shift was the, the most appropriate shift, particularly in terms of interacting with the tenants as well. There was much more opportunity. Um, and so uh, they took over that day contract in 2004. They're still delivering it in 2016. So they have that contract now across Fitzroy, Collingwood and Richmond. They now take on 20 tenants a year. And we did an evaluation in 2008 and 80% of the people who started ended up getting a job in the open labour market. So it was incredibly successful at pathwaying people. And some of the really interesting changes were in the first year that we ran that, no one believed that we were only making these jobs available to the public housing tenants. They weren't used to, um, uh, you know, a... a um, they were used to being discriminated against. They weren't used to the opposite to that, where they were get, they were being uh, positively discriminated. Yeah. Uh, so I remember the first time we, we advertised these roles and we got one application from 800 households for these jobs, even though we were saying, hey, no, they're real. And we had to knock on 800 doors here to find another four applicants for those jobs. And even then, they weren't really the right people um, <laughs> that we were looking for, but they were the only people who came forward. And 
two years later, we were recruiting for the same roles. Usually it was an annual recruitment. And we got 90 applicants for those roles. So we broke down the distrust in the community. We um, opened up a dialogue. They started to see the people from their community working and they believed that they were real jobs and they saw where they went on to when they left um, working here. And so it became a really affirmative um, experience. And I guess I finished working in this community in 2008 and I went on to work, uh, I was working at the Brotherhood of St Lawrence running that social enterprise from 2005. What was really interesting was that um, we had gone from, so between 2000 and 2008, we'd gone from collecting 2,000 syringes a month to collecting 400 syringes a month. So you can't get rid of heroin, but uh, you can manage the experience of heroin on these estates. We went from 25% annual turnover, and we went from, more to the point, we went from 125 vacant properties. We went from 125 vacant properties to a six-year waiting list to get into this estate. We went from 25% annual turnover to 10% annual turnover, which is consistent with the neighbouring community. And we went from 95% joblessness to 81% joblessness, which is profound. Most of the people here are incapable of working. Uh, they're either too old on aged care pensions, they're on, they've got severe disabilities that prohibit them from working. Only 30% of the population is on Newstart, which is the pension which is associated with getting people back into the labour market. And half of that group got back into the labour market over that eight year period. It was profound. I think we probably had the lowest rate of joblessness of any public housing estate in Victoria. So starting from the worst public housing estate and over an eight year period moving to the estate that had the greatest level of employment uh, with a drug problem that became under control. The waiting list wasn't the longest waiting list, but it was a healthy waiting list. The community was transformed through a whole range of government investments. And for me, what was profound was the role that our own spend had during that process, that we could actually create that much employment. And even if indirectly, people just started to believe that employment was normal. Unemployment wasn't normal anymore. And if you could work, you should work. And that provided role models in the community that were no longer the drug dealers. So the kids growing up here, and it's a family estate, and over half the population is under 20. They now saw other people uh, in their lives who, who, who had meaningful work. Um, and drugs weren't the prevalent um, image. And if, you know, just looking around now, you know, I swear, I, I, I would not have been able to sit here comfortably uh, yeah. 10 years ago. I would not have been able to, you know, being tall and skinny walking across an estate like this, I guarantee I would have been asked if I wanted to score. And uh, I would not have felt welcome walking around this estate, nor safe. So it's a profound shift. Yeah. It's an amazing shift. um, Were there any Herald Sun front page articles about the change? (laughs) No, and I've often commented to the state government at the time, this was one of the best news stories that that you could have run out of... This is the the Brax-Brumby government, you know. This is the story. This is a true Labor story in many ways you invested in the most disadvantaged communities and you turn them around and not only that but you actually use some of your existing spend differently to generate really impressive outcomes without additional spend yeah Yeah. 
I mean, there was additional spend in a whole range of other domains, but yeah. but in terms of employment, there wasn't an additional spend, and yeah. the impact was profound. So, you know, there was such good story to tell, and and you ask the 800 households who lived here who lived through that, and they can tell you um, what a profound change it was yeah. from from being a victim to actually taking ownership of the community that you live back. In. You know, yeah. it was stunning. Yeah. yeah. So you've taken that experience that you had here and now you're working in a different organisation called yep. the Social Traders. Yep. Is that drawing a lot upon your experience here or what are you actually doing there? Yeah, so Social Traders is a social enterprise development organisation and we started Social Traders in 2008. So when I stopped working at the Brotherhood, the Brotherhood had actually incubated uh, uh, the idea of a specific purpose-built organisation that would enable social enterprises to develop and that uh, 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 we developed that idea and developed a business plan for that in early 2008 and we pitched it to government and we pitched it to philanthropy and um, they thought uh, philanthropy loved it and government thought it was a really good idea and was prepared to match the commitment made by philanthropy on this. Uh, So we argued for this organisation and got four years of funding to kickstart this organisation and social traders effectively does four things. We um, build the capability of social enterprises, so we um, run a program called The Crunch, which is designed to take um, uh, great social enterprise ideas and um, take them from ideas to investable social enterprises. Uh, And it also takes existing social enterprises uh, that are either um, uh, have capacity to perform better or uh, are ready to scale and helps them to achieve that um, over a six month period and then um, uh, those who are scaling it introduces them to procurement opportunities for those who are uh, it introduces all of those businesses to investment opportunities and we're an investor as well so that's the second plank of what we do we invest in social enterprises and we've invested about 12 social enterprises over the last five years and uh, the other piece that we uh, do is around opening markets to social enterprise, so hence the procurement piece for us. So uh, how do you scale a social enterprise's impact? You do it by um, opening up contract opportunities. So uh, it's a big part of our work now. It's taken a while to get there um, because there has to be a fertile environment for it. And now we think the environment is really right for social procurement, both in Victoria but nationally as well. So we're seeing... Uh, governments in Queensland, New South Wales and the federal government as well as WA are really ripe for this sort of dialogue at the moment but we're also seeing corporates have just arrived at the point where um, it's on their lips uh, it's, it's, it's actually um, one of those sort of moments in time where they're actually talking about how to reimagine value um, what's the new value that procurement can drive I mean it's driven cost savings, it's driven environmental benefit it's driven a range of strategic objectives to the organisation. Can it now drive social value, which is incredibly valuable to an organisation because uh, staff want to work for organisations who do really good things. Yeah. Uh, so it's, a tra- it's about staff attraction and reten- retention. And um, they really want to build their brand, and this is a great way of building brand because there's no significant additional cost uh, it integrates social impact into the DNA of the organisation, so it's not something that will, not like checkbook account, checkbook philanthropy or something. It can't just be unwound very easily. 
uh, once you're doing it, once someone's got a contract for three years or six years or eight years, they're there, you know, and uh, it's it's um, a kind of meaningful to the staff because it's actually not just saying, um, we do good stuff, look at how we've spent money and a whole range of social initiatives. It's saying we're changing the way that we go to market. We're changing our supply chain to deliver social impact. We're actually a different organisation now and we don't see um, checkbook philanthropy as the only way that we can have an impact in the communities where we work. So uh, we think it's, it's quite transformational. It has a really disruptive element to it because it's starting to say value isn't just about price and quality, which is really, you know, I guess the two great considerations in procurement, price, quality and risk. Now it's saying price, quality, risk and impact. Yeah. And that can be through buying from indigenous businesses, buying from social enterprises, um, including uh, sustainability in your supply chain, so environmental and, and other sorts of outcomes. It can be about local economic development as well. Yeah. And, and, and I guess um, it's a really terrific proposition to these organisations that they can actually just start to play with their spend and deliver all of these added value back to the communities where they're working. They yeah. can actually become a real driver of positive social outcomes. And I guess for me, you know, traditionally we saw businesses, well, that's business and government, part of the role of government is to fund, you know, to fix the problems that businesses create. And what we're starting to see now is business saying, we will create positive externalities from everything that we, we're yeah. doing. And it's not the role of government to fix, it's our role to fix too. Well, more to the point, it's our role not to do harm and hopefully create positives out of our interactions in the community. And some businesses have been amazing at that. You know, the body shop is a great example. But a lot of corporates traditionally did not see that as their role. And, and I think this is quite transformational. When you start to capture the spend, the corporate spend and the government spend in Australia, our estimate is it's about $500 billion of spend. So if you can tap into corporate and government spend and have it start to deliver the goods and services that it always purchased plus social impact, and it doesn't have to be 15 jobs out of a $1 million spend, that's, that's very heavy sort of social impact. But if it was 15 jobs out of a $10 million spend or 15 jobs even out of a $50 million spend, the multiplier of that is huge. It's huge. and and, and and it's creating the workforce of the future for us too, you know. We're, we're facing these other forces at the moment, which is we have an ageing population. We are struggling to think where the workers are going to come from in the future, but 5% of the economy, 5% of the potential workforce is unemployed currently. And with a little bit of... Um, uh, a little tweak in terms of the way that we go out to market, we can actually create... We can actually create employment for that cohort. And we can free up the other people who are working in lower skilled jobs to move up the, the, uh, the chain in terms of the work that they undertake. But that workforce, that 5%, what we proved when I worked at the Brotherhood is that people the whole market had no interest in with a year in a social enterprise could be incredibly attractive to the marketplace. Yeah. Yep. So they're not wasted resources. They're sitting there waiting for the opportunity. And, and in many cases, you know, traditional private businesses aren't set up to employ this cohort, but social enterprises are set up to employ this cohort. 
And so what's exciting about this is that the more that corporates start to engage with social enterprises, the more you can see that workforce coming, that potential, that latent workforce coming back in and their lives being transformed as a result of this. I mean, I could tell you a handful of stories about people's lives who have been dramatically changed as a result yeah. of getting a job through a social enterprise. I couldn't just give you a handful. Quite literally, there are tens of thousands of stories of people working in social enterprises whose lives were changed. And without social enterprise, it's very hard to say whether they would have had any of, uh, opportunity like that. So these businesses are quite profound in, in change, in my view. Yeah. Can you talk about an example of a, a change in procurement practice to more social procurement in a big corporate that perhaps people might not expect yeah, 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 to sure. be that way inclined or have had that kind of shift? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, look, a couple of examples come to mind. I mean, the mining companies are actually at the forefront of this stuff. So, um, uh, you know, uh, and, and that's kind of historical. Uh, and it's partly because they do need a license to trade in some of the communities they operate in. So, you know, they're about to extract, you know, billions of dollars of minerals from the ground. What are you going to do for the local community? And so a lot of the work they've been doing is with indigenous businesses in remote communities and building those businesses. and. I know for a fact that Rio Tinto spent, spent um, uh, over $1 billion in 2012 with indigenous businesses in remote communities. Um, and that was a massive shift because none of that money had been spent with indigenous businesses prior to that. So for me, you know, spending a billion dollars with indigenous businesses is probably more profound than any government program you could ever run to create indigenous employment. Yeah. Um, at the other end, we're working with a whole range of organisations now. So we have a program called Connect, and we link corporate buyers to social enterprises. So our role in that is to certify social enterprises um, and work with corporates to identify contract opportunities and then find social enterprise suppliers to respond to those contract opportunities and then for the corporate to um, directly buy from those social enterprises. Sometimes it's the corporate's head contractor being encouraged to buy from those social enterprises. So it can be at the first, second or third tier potentially. Yeah. Um, and we're working with the likes of Australia Post at the moment who have 16 social enterprises in their supply chain. We're working with um, uh, uh, Transfield and Transfield has 15 social enterprises in their supply chain. We're working with Len Lease. Len Lease has no idea how many social enterprises they have in their supply chain. Yeah. Um, but they keep finding more, <laughs> yeah. and we keep directing them to more social enterprises. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, the opportunities, and this is kind of early days for most of these organisations. They are, yeah. uh, they're coming to social procurement now. Uh, you know, really, we've only had procurement as part of our language for about 30 or 40 years. Um, and, you know, over the last 10 years, it's started to move to strategic procurement. So they're thinking more strategically. It's less of a tactical tool and more of a strategic yep. tool. And I guess this is the next iteration in the strategic journey for, for business. So, you know, I guess what I talk about is this latent untapped pool of social change, which is $500 billion in Australia that could be driving all sorts of um, impact. And I think in the next five to ten years, we're going to see that realised. I think it's going to become normal, just as it's normal to talk about sustainability and environmental expectations in procurement, it will be equally normal 
to talk about social expectations in procurement processes, whether that's buying from social enterprises or just saying to every supplier, you must deliver social benefit, and these are our areas of interest in terms of social benefit, i.e. we're interested in homelessness or people who are unemployed or indigenous or whatever it is, and you need to become experts at finding out how to address our social requirements moving forward. So I think there's a really timely and exciting opportunity to go to the next frontier of social impact, because I don't think it's going to come from community services. There's no more money for community services. In fact, there's not enough budget to deliver the health expectations that we've got, uh, that the government is anticipating in the next 25 years. So we're going to have to look at new opportunities, environments and methods of, of delivering social impact. And this is just terribly complementary to the ones that we already have in place. It's, it's, uh, it is truly untapped and it has enormous potential and that's what we've really got to tap into. Yeah. And I guess if you want to think about the possibilities, just think fair trade. Think about the profound effect that fair trade products have had over the last 15 years on communities in developing countries. And it's the same process. It's changing your buying patterns to have that sort of impact. Imagine everyone was buying from Thank You or Who Gives a Crap or um, they were getting all of their catering from you know the household name social enterprises in Melbourne. You, know, you can see one across the road, Charcoal Lane, eating out at Charcoal Lane yeah, in Melbourne. Eco store. Uh, it's about consumers and buyers at a procurement level actually changing their practice and that's what will drive that sort of next wave of um, social impact from my perspective. Yeah, it feels like a really exciting time as you were saying there's a bit of a tipping point occurring which is really cool. Um, we are getting a little bit drenched so I'll ask you a couple of questions <laughs> just as we wrap up. Um, firstly, what's uh, this podcast is called Subtle Disruptors. Uh, just reflecting on yourself, what's a subtle thing you've done in your own life that helps you along the path that you're on? right now? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think, you know, if you look at my journey, I mean, I was a school teacher before I got into social housing, so there's no natural path to falling into these sort of roles. I think that, um, uh, I think for me, all of my energy came out of exposure and innovation. So um, I think a willingness to innovate is central to disruption, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I've never believed that uh, the way things were being done was the right way. I think there was a fundamental belief that um, not that the system was broken, but the system needed to continue to evolve to achieve what it could achieve. Uh, it could achieve. And, and I think for me, I just had to find the right vehicle for the achievement of that. So um, some things are, uh, uh, I guess, what procurement became for me when I latched onto the idea was, well, this is profound, right? This is profound because we're not talking about how we use community services money and how we use the government's community services spend. And up until then, that's the dialogue I'd been in, you know, you know, there's not enough housing or there's not this or that, the government needs to give more money to these sorts of things. And, you know, and, and that stuff's legitimate, you know. But essentially, you're banging your head up against a limited government budget and unlimited need, basically. So what was profound for me was to say, 
but there's this whole other budget which is a hundred times bigger than the community services budget or 20 times bigger than the community services budget. It's enormous and it's delivering no social value, uh, no real added social value at the moment. Obviously building a road adds social value or building a train line, you know, or a library or whatever it is. But what else could that money be doing as well as building a library? Yeah. And, and so, mm. you know, this subtle disruptor really is saying, um, the epiphany really is, oh my God, here's something that's latent and sitting there that's not being tapped into. And if it was activated, the shift that it would create would, would just be insane. You know, the impacts and the uh, multipliers and the uh, opportunities, huge and vast. And that's what really engaged me. And I guess, um, you know, I was open to that idea and so are a whole range of other people. The interesting thing is that most people let it go at some point. And the fortunate thing for me is that I kept getting into roles where I kept getting to run with my passion, you know. Mm. So I've been playing this space for 15 years now because every time I've created a new job for myself, I've built social procurement into uh, the function of that job yep. and I've been able to continue to pursue it. So um, I guess the way most entrepreneurs work is they build their own businesses to do this sort of stuff. I guess what I was able to do was continue to build my own role within businesses uh, and people gave me enough rope to keep playing in that space. And I, I suspect I've taken a lot longer than I should have in order to achieve the outcomes that we have so far. Um, but having said that, if it wasn't me doing it, it would have, uh, you know, it wouldn't have totally fallen off the agenda. There's other people pushing this stuff, but it certainly would have taken a lot longer than it's taken already, which seems right. like a long time, in yeah. truth. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And finally, what's something that you would like to be involved with disrupting in the future? Like if you were to think beyond procurement, yeah. are there things that you daydream about? Mm, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think in the future, um, I think you can only talk about what you're exposed to. And, and I seem to get exposed to uh, uh, I mean, you're asking a really tough question. Do I have any other disruptive um, thoughts uh, yeah. in terms of change? I think that um, there are really interesting elements of disruption occurring that I'm watching with great interest at the moment. So one of those is social impact bonds, and I'm really fascinated by the idea that you can engage industry to run um, uh, you know, whether it's a not-for-profit or a private company, uh, delivering outcomes better than government programs can and being rewarded by government for the savings that you're generating for them as a return on the investment. So I think that's really quite an exciting and interesting space. And I don't know if that's the start or the end of the discussion. I'm wondering if we're just on a journey now where uh, there will be fundamental shifts in the way that we um, deliver social outcomes, not just procurement, not just the rebirth of the, uh, the way that um, the not-for-profit sector is paid for, for delivering, but, but potentially in other domains as well. I mean, and as an observer, I'm really fascinated by the National Dis Disability Insurance Scheme that's about to be put into place too. So I'm quite fascinated by the fact that government is shifting from uh, paying organisations to provide services to paying consumers to choose who they buy services from and actually the innovation that will occur in that space as a result of that process.
but I, I'm not seeing anything as big as social procurement. Yeah. There's, there's not another one sitting out there. And maybe, maybe uh, some people see these things all the time. And maybe I'm going to see one or two in my life, and this is one of them. Yeah. And I'd be quite happy if that were the case, to tell you the truth, because I feel like um, uh, it's landing now. And if we can really sort of um, nail it, um, and you really truly can unleash $500 billion of uh, spend to deliver social impact, then um, I can wipe my hands and walk away quite um, pleased at that outcome. And, 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 and I guess I just want to be clear, I mean, I'm not attributing all of that to the work that I've done. There's been a whole range of stakeholders around it, but um, knowing that you played a role in that, um, that would be um, super exciting and uh, something where you could sleep easily at night, you know, so I'd feel good about that. Yeah, yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. Mark, awesome to talk with you. Thanks a lot for your time. Pleasure. Yeah, thank Thanks you. Thanks for taking me onto the uh, estate for yeah. the first time. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Subtle Disruptors. I hope you got something out of it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, including any suggestions you have for guests. You can get me on email through adam at subtledisruptors.com. And if you enjoyed listening and would like to be part of getting the word out about the Subtle Disruptors of Melbourne, a great way to do this is through jumping into iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. I'm Adam Murray, and I look forward to hearing about your own Subtle Disruption. Bye for now.